Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Hello and welcome to the show. Today, we've got Michael Episcope on the show. We had a really good interview. Michael's a, a very high level guy seasoned executive started out as uh, as a trader did that for many years built his initial wealth there and then through uh being unsatisfied i guess with his his wealth preservation and growth options uh partnered up with a with a longtime friend and built a real estate investment company that he oversees today so today they've they're overseeing nine thousand units of multifamily uh 30 employees on the team all throughout the United States. And it was fantastic to get to walk through that journey uh, with Michael. And there's a lot of lessons learned along the way. So, you know, we talk to a lot of different folks on this on this podcast, right? Whether it's the guy that just bought his first multifamily deal to people that are just raising capital to people that are institutional type uh, investors. And Michael is, is towards that side of the spectrum, right? Big kind of institutional. Uh, they do have a multifamily focus. So that's kind of in line with, with our, our show here and the guests we usually have on. But I think you're going to appreciate as a passive investor, some of his insights. And then I think as an, as an operator for those operators, are you listening that, uh, or aspiring operators, you're going to appreciate just the level of sophistication that they have and, and how they look at their projects. Um, so it's great conversation, uh, very intelligent individual. I think you're going to learn a lot from Michael. So we'll get into that. If you want to join the DJE investor list, and you're not currently seeing our projects that we launch, you can go to djetexas.com and sign up there for either investor portal access or schedule a call with our investor relations team. And then if you're an operator or you're an aspiring operator looking to accelerate your success in multifamily investing, we've got a great free set of video, video series for you at apartmenteducators.com. So if you're looking to expand your skill set and network, apartmenteducators.com, we've got some great free content for you there. Okay, let's jump in to the episode with Michael. Here we go. Michael, welcome. Thank you for coming on the show. How are you? Good, Devin. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. Glad to uh, glad to have you on and I want to dive into it and talk about your real estate career and, and some of the things you've done. But first, by way of introduction here, maybe a little bit of your, your background and how you ended up coming to real estate investments. Um, what was that? What was that journey like for you? Yeah, a little bit of a long circuitous route. Uh, I was first really introduced to real estate as a youngster. My grandfather was in it. I used to work summer jobs, didn't really know that um, that was going to be so impressionable. I mean, when I was that young, but this is when I was 12, 13, 14. I just loved work, swing a hammer, help out, do things. And he was managing a lot of buildings on the west side of Chicago. So some really rough stuff back in the 70s, bought those things out of uh, tax credit sales, things of that nature. Sure. I got away from it after high school, uh, went to college. I ended up, um, my first career was actually trading. So I was a commodities trader until I was um, age 36. And in that business, um, that's where I really built my wealth. And then I had the need to invest my wealth and build it. And um, the computers took over and I decided enough was enough and I didn't want to take risk. And um, at the end of my trading career, I was married. I had two kids. So a, a lot more people, um, you know, who sort of relied on me. It was sure. very different from what I 
started my career. So I decided um, that I really wanted to use real estate as a means to grow my wealth, protect my wealth, build passive income. So I went and got a master's in real estate then at DePaul. And I had partnered with my partner, David Shear, who I'm still partners with today. And we got together really because we had a, a mindset about what we wanted to do with our own capital. And we had both invested in a passive manner. And it was always two steps forward, one step back. And we just looked at each other and said, we can do better than this with our own money. And, and there's, right. you know, that was the, the genesis of it is saying, look, we just want to be stewards of our own capital and do this together. And, um, and I think what we're really good at is, is risk management and understanding. I mean, this isn't rocket science. There's a lot of just common sense around this industry. And we started in the beginning, um, you know, there's always a little luck to every career as well. Sure. We started in 07. Um, we didn't put any money out in 07. Uh, we put some money out in, in 08. Uh, that was only our own capital. We started putting more money out in 09. So, you know, a little bit of a falling knife there. And then we started... Uh, syndicating deals in 2010, raised our first fund in 2011, our second fund in 2013. We then started marketing our company in 2015. And the reason was, is, you know, our whole philosophy was, look, we have a really great product and we had about 70 investors in 2015, but we are also um, a top decile manager. So fund one ended up being top decile performance. Fund two was tracking in top decile we were getting more and more referrals, people coming in. And, and the simple adage is that if you have a great product and you put it in front of a lot of people, you're going to get more people who buy it. So right. then we, that was really the inflection point of origin. I would say pre or pre 2015, you know, even going to 2007, it was two guys buying real estate. That's all it was. And then right. bringing in friends and family looking to do great deals. Um, and today though, uh, you know, we've been, blessed. Uh, we've got a, a great team, 30 people who choose to call Origin home. We represent more than 1,800 high net worth investors today across our various funds. Uh, we have four offices. We're located in Chicago, but it's been an absolutely great run. So that, that's kind of, you know, maybe the abbreviated version. I've told the story in five minutes and, and 50 minutes at times. So you, you've kind of gone from age 12 to 51 where I am today. <laughs> well, it's very concise and there's a yeah. lot to unpack there. Thank you. Um, you know, you mentioned your, your career as a trader and, and uh, I was at a conference recently and one of the themes that kept coming up was that building wealth and keeping and growing wealth are really kind of two different, very different activities uh, and, and they require some different skill sets and different outlooks. So, uh, you know, it sounds like you've, you kind of navigated through that piece. I'm curious too, on your structure, um, around syndicating, have you always done the, the fund model versus kind of a one-off, um, asset by asset syndication model and why, why one or the other? Yeah, so we really are what I'll call an investor centric firm. And, and we've always, um, the fund has two benefits, right? There's a benefit for investors when you think about the diversification aspect. And some people, the fees are no different, right? And this is what sure. people don't understand about, you know, the funds or syndicated deals. But the advantage to a manager having a fund is you have permanent capital going into a market. And in 20, you know, in, in every market, when you go and, and you go to tie up a deal, the most important thing is, do you have capital? And so that was one of the reasons early on that we created a fund model, but it was also because we just believe this is how investors should invest. And 
you're so much better protected in a fund model than you are in an individual model. And I'm sure that there's a lot of investors listening today who understand this because when things go wrong and they will, when you're in an individual deal and that deal starts, whether it's office or multifamily or retail, loses a tenant or struggles, right? And it needs money. Well, if you're not with a sponsor with unbelievably deep pockets and who's benevolent and it's just going to lend it money, guess what? They're calling capital from you. Yep. And, and we've seen this even in some deals that we did syndicate individually and it became the bank of um, David and Michael. Like, well, yeah. we loaned the property money because we didn't want to call yep. money from investors. And so in a fund structure, what happens is you have, a, you have a company, a holding company with all of these assets underneath it. And you have a diversified portfolio. And just like any portfolio of investments, some are going to do really well and some might struggle a little bit. And that money can go through the holding company and come down and around. And so that's a huge advantage from a risk management standpoint. And personally, you know, real estate is about people and, and you don't bet on right. projects or, or individual investments. You bet on the people because that's what it comes down to. And that's the correlation between success and failure there. So we believe strongly in funds. And I'll tell you, in my own personal investment portfolio outside of real estate, I only invest in managers and in funds on that side because I don't know what I'm doing. I can't pick a deal better than they can. Sure. And sure. what we do, and, and we've sort of adopted this in the market, it's not an or, it's an and. So mm -hmm. if we have a deal or we're trying to diversify the fund or keep it, um, keep our equity component a little lower than we want it, what we do is we syndicate a part of that deal through a sidecar, but we only bring that out to fund investors. So they have the benefit of being in the fund, knowing that we vetted a deal, that it's been looked over, it's gone through a rigorous process, and then they can invest in it. And that is what we found is sort of the best way for investors investing in the fund, but also getting access to those sidecar deals on a one-off opportunity. And there's a lot of demand for those. I love it. Well, thank you. Yeah, that certainly makes a lot of sense with spreading the, the risk around. And I've certainly been in the position of being the bank of Devon on some deals because, you know, our investors trust us to, to get it, the projects done and and hit or beat our pro formas. And nobody, no sponsor wants to go back for a capital call. And no. if you are a passive investor, you know, and you're doing one-off deals, you got to make sure your, your sponsors is well capitalized. And there is kind of that benevolence that you mentioned because, you know, it's, 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 it's a responsibility for the sponsor to be able to cover some things that maybe need to happen on an older asset to, to ride through a rough patch, whatever the case is. So I like the diversity approach. Um, are you guys always raising capital then for the fund? And then is it a challenge to try to get it deployed? Or have you found a pretty good balance with that? So I, I'd say we found a pretty good balance with that. And I'll, I'll take you through kind of the way our mindset is. Um, so we, we build, buy, and lend multifamily properties across uh, around 14 markets. Those are changing, expanding. We use a proprietary machine learning model to sort of uh, look at our, our various markets and some of them come off, some of them get added. Chicago is one that we just sort of, you know, what we'll call as it's a hold market, not maybe a sell market, but we're sure. not doing any business here until they get the, uh, not that they're ever going to, you know, straighten out the fiscal situation, but hopefully we can get a little more clarity around it. 
Um, so when we think about our fund structure, we think about the risk spectrum of investors. What do investors want, right? And so investors, when you think about some just want income and passive income right. in a product, some want a little bit of income and growth, and some want only put the pedal to the metal in the growth side. So when we're out there and our team is looking at multifamily, well, they're also providing solutions to the market. So they want a, a lot of what we do is joint venture with developers out there. But if we can't come to terms, then what we do, if we can't come to terms on the equity side, well, then the conversation might turn to, well, what about preferred equity, a protected position in the capital structure? And so when, when we're, we'll do development on common equity, which is obviously a higher growth, no income on that. Sure. We'll do preferred equity, which is a structured position, um, less risk with capital or with income on those. And then in the middle, we do value add and, and core plus properties as well. And that provides some upside, some uh, some cash flow, uh, depreciation, et cetera. And then where those go in the different funds is really up to us as portfolio managers for the benefits that we're trying to give to investors. Um, I, I hope I'm making sense there in that. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you right now, we're not... The middle segment um, is we're not active in that at all. So we have a lot of flexibility. Um, we don't have a mandate in every, any one of our funds that we have to do this much in value add. We have to do this much in preferred equity, right? You have a target portfolio, but then life changes and the world changes and it's up to us to look at the risk reward. So right now I would categorize our approach as very barbell. We're developing and we're lending, but the value add and the core plus is really challenging because everything, and you see this, Devin, it's, it's trading above replacement cost. And we can't right. make sense of buying a property that's 10 years old with value add potential. And you're buying it at 240 a unit. You're putting $15,000 a unit into it. You're 255. Your exit price is at 290 in five years. And yet you can build today for 210 a door. Right. That math does not make sense to us. And so we're choosing to stay out of that middle but what is great today is that the, the development side, you're still getting great margins on that. And then in deals that either we can't come to terms with or, or maybe we just don't believe in as much, we'll do the preferred equity side. So, so that's kind of where we are today and how we, we think about the world. I love it. Thank you for the overview. Are you guys exclusively in multifamily projects or you mentioned maybe there's some office retail type assets as well? So it's been an evolution. Today, we are exclusively in multifamily. We own and control around 9,000 multifamily units. Uh, we have done in our history, we've done office, we've done industrial, we've even done student housing, we've done retail. And, and it was a different world. When you think about the, the world in 08 and 09, capital had all of the leverage back then. And all right. you had to do is buy, buy, buy. And it didn't really matter. And as you move through time, as that edge disappears, it really comes down to operational excellence and understanding all of the inputs and where the pennies and the nickels and the dimes and where you can save money. And it's really helped us in a lot of ways because our entire investment management department is set up with their technology around multifamily and multifamily only. And when you start having different asset classes, well, you're using all kinds of different models and systems. And then also just the message to the market. So when we're working in the market and the only thing we're looking for is multifamily, the brokers, the people who are selling the properties control the deals, they know exactly what we do. Because when you go out to the market and you say, hey, we do everything, what they hear is you do nothing. 
you know, yes. and so that's been really helped us um, actually increase deal flow more than anything. But we, we just like multifamily. It's not um, it's not going to be impacted by the Internet or, you know, in markets we're in, we're actually benefiting from the virtualization. Office is too chunky. You, right. you know, office looks great on paper, but you lose a big tenant and all of a sudden your occupancy goes from 98% to 78%. Um, you know, it's, it's expensive, the TIs and what you realize is it's, it's the brokers and the contractors who make all the money in the office side. Right. Right. Yeah. I've seen a, a lot of friends of mine doing office to multifamily conversions, right. Kind of taking that, that chunky uh, asset class that's been, uh, in some cases, pretty negatively impacted by COVID in the last two years uh, and, and turning into multifamily, which to your point is kind of stable and immune for now anyway, to a lot of these uh, uh, market shifts and, and just a, a more stable asset class. Uh, I think that, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I resonate with what you say about the focus. I mean, we've got a very narrow focus at our firm. It's kind of like San Antonio multifamily. And we want everybody to, to think about us when that extremely narrow conversation comes up and it's helped the whole team stay focused. Right. I mean, there's, you know, as you know, you've got to say no to just about everything and, um, and, and doing that and focusing on the, you know, what's in your box is, is just going to increase everything deal flow and the team efficiency and so forth. So you mentioned, you know, it started with you and your partner deploying your own capital, trying to find a better way to do things. Uh, now you've got 30 employees. What does the team look like uh, today? So, uh, yeah, we have four offices. So we're headquartered in Chicago. That's where about two thirds of the team is. We also have offices. I mean, I, I get you can include we've had people sort of take advantage of the virtualization. So sure. we have people living uh, Tampa. We have people living in Nashville, in Charlotte, in Dallas, in um, Denver. So we're, we're actually growing. And then we have another team member who is um, going to be moving down to Miami. So I, I never thought that we would be really uh, a virtual workforce. And we're not quite that today, but we are allowing some flexibility of people to move. Um, and the way we're set up is, is, I think, very similar to other firms. So when we th you think about our divisions, we have an acquisitions division where people boots on the ground around the United States. They're the ones who are creating the relationships with local sponsors, people like yourselves, because real estate is local and you got to have right. that insight because you can't just look at real estate on a spreadsheet going down, kicking the tires. And then there's, there's an art to this that you lose if you're just trying to be in Chicago underwrite deals and looking at that. So we, we made that switch a long time ago. And then they're supported by transactional officers um, in the acquisitions department, analysts, et cetera. Then we have our investment management department, because when you think about the life cycle of an asset, acquiring it might take three to six months, but then that asset lives with you for 10 years. Right. So we have a dedicated investment management team that is responsible for managing that asset, keeping an eye on the property manager. They have the technology set up in a way that when they sit down at their desk in the morning, they're getting real-time reports on all of this social media and reviews and, and the things that matter on those and keeping track of, of everybody. And when you're when you're looking at 9,000 units across multiple markets, this is truly a team effort. And you've, you've got to be the squeaky wheel because if you are one of these 
um, managers who is just kind of letting them do their job and trusting them. Well, guess what? I mean, that doesn't work in the world. We all know that anybody who runs a business. So we um, we have great property managers, but but you have to stay on them at all times. And so what we do a good job of, I think, in that department as well, is we benchmark ourselves against all of uh, the comparable properties in the market. So these are this is information that, that David and I have um, that we get from our investment management team because it's really important for us that every department is benchmarking their success, right? Or, or else if you're not measuring it, then you don't even know if you're winning in the market. So great, you, 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 know, you increase rents this year at 4%. I don't know if that's good. Right. What if the market went up 10%? Guess what? That's not so good. Right. So we look at that. And then we have a marketing team. We have an investor relations team. Uh, we have corporate operations, which include legal and accounting as well. So all of the, um, we have an operations team as well behind the IR team. So there's a lot that goes on to managing 1800 investors, 9,000 units and doing it well. So we've always made sure that we're investing ahead of growth mm -hmm. and you know just being disciplined and staying true to our core values. And I would say that you know we, we've been very measured about the way we've grown over the last five or six years. And the last year has been, you know we've grown quite a bit. Um, but Devin, I do want to touch on something you said that I grabbed on because I think it's such an important word and the word is no. And right. that's something that I think when we're in the market, like even turning down a deal, you know, to our deal team and saying, no, this doesn't make sense. We can recreate this deal. It's average or it's below average or this. And so, and that's a word that I really, you know, that I learned later on in life, you know, because I used to say yes to everything and yep. I made a lot of mistakes that way. And you got to understand that, you know, there's another bus that's going to come by. And, and no is, I think, you know, for to our investors out there and the listeners, it's okay to say no, right? Like, like that's, that's, you know, you, you learn from doing that, but that's a really important, um, you know, word just to exercise on a regular basis. Yeah, hundred percent. And I, I have to be reminded of that constantly. And, you know, I've, I've got to go back to my own notes on this constantly. And I look at what's led us astray or led the company astray over the last couple of years. It's, it was kind of invariably uh, me getting outside the box on some things. Why, why did we, you know, in retrospect, why did I waste time and energy? And now one of the things I've kind of been challenged with as I've grown our firm is, it's not just me as an entrepreneur out there making all these decisions that, you know, I've, I could be giving the organization whiplash now because we're big, bigger organization and I can't be as, as nimble with all these decisions. And so saying no has become even more important uh, as the, as yeah. the company's grown and we kind of have to set our strategy and stick to our guns, which for some entrepreneurs, really myself included, very difficult to do, right? You know, you've got shiny objects and new things and changing markets, but uh, couldn't and agree more. Questioning you too, yeah, right. it's hard, and you have to stay disciplined. And you know, there's an old saying in trading: it was plan your trade and trade your plan, and that mm -hmm. that applies to every business, right? Have a right. strategic plan, follow it. Understanding that life happens and there are ways, but but we have to have guardrails as entrepreneurs to use that word no in a very exercise manner. Now you know, there's, there's, but anyway, we can move on. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I appreciate you touching on that. Um, so you, you mentioned a little bit last year, you know, we're talking right now, mid 2021, uh, mm -hmm. this year has gone by a lot faster than last year. I think last year is the longest year on record for many of us. How, how was COVID? What, 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 how did it impact the business and what, and what lessons came out of that for you guys? 
Well, I'll, I'll take you through. So March of 2021, we were having kind of a record first quarter. We were uh, raising- This a lot is of, of 2020 or 2021? I'm sorry, 2020. Yes, okay, March of you. 2020. Yep. And I mean, it, it's crazy. You know, these are scarred in your mind, no different than the 07, 08. That's we right. look back, it feels like yesterday, the 9-11s, you know, I can, I can remember exactly where I was, but right. it was March of 2020. And it was surreal. Uh, you remember that the stock market was sliding 5% a day. We'd never seen a pandemic come to the United States of any, you know, materiality. And um, we had about $250 million in deals under contract. And every day that went by, you know, my partner and I were talking and listening and you're watching the stock market and you're like, oh my God, like what is happening? We killed all those deals. Wow. And it was the right decision. And I'm going to get to that in, in, a, in a point, but we had no idea what was going to happen, right? They were announcing that all of a sudden the NBA was shut down, the global economy was shutting down and we pulled out and a lot of our partners, they totally understood. They're like, yeah, like, like we're out of this too. Some people weren't that happy though. They're like, you committed to this deal. You did this. We're like, oh, wow. Yeah. We're a fiduciary. Like I, yep. we, and we tried like, you shouldn't be doing this deal either. Right. right. Like we don't know where the world is. And for, you know, people have been through 08 and 09. Well, I thought we were right back in there. And sure. 08, if you think about it, there were little cracks in the foundation in 07. Then came 08. You thought it was bad then, but then came 09 and it was really bad. Then came 10. And it was that was the bottom of the market. Then came 11 and, and you were still holding your breath. And then came 12 and you were looking over your shoulder and still hoping and 13 and four. And I don't think psychologically we recovered till 14, 15, 16 right. during that period. And so you looked at this five years and we had a conversation with our team um, about this. We didn't lay anybody off during that period, but Excellent. a lot of our team is young. They're in their right. mid-20s. So when this happened to them, in 08, they were in middle school. They didn't know what was right. going on here. They didn't realize, like, what do you mean? We might not get a bonus. What do you mean? I mean so it, it was very eye-opening, um, you know, to me, first of all, as a manager dealing with a younger group, never having gone through this before and only knowing annual raises and bonuses that exceed target, et cetera. Um, but we got through and, 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 you know, it was sort of like, I think one thing we did really well during that is we started communicating and over-communicating. Yes. This isn't a difference I think we have as investors. We know that nobody wants a black hole. And even if you don't know, you still have to say you don't know. Right. And, and so we got on a webinar in April and we're like, look, we don't know what's going to happen here. We're going to do everything in our power. We're aligned with you. Nobody has more money in these deals than us. And we're going to fight and scratch and claw. And, and what we told people, it's all the decisions you make before a crisis that really matter in a crisis, because right. when you're in a crisis, it's too late. So how much do you leverage? What kind of assets do you buy? Where are you located, et cetera, et cetera. And assets that are you know, undercapitalized and just poor business plans and bad locations and et cetera, et cetera, those are going to be the first to get clobbered. Um, fortunately, the Fed, they came in and they, they pumped in trillions of dollars. Sure. It was kind of crazy about what happened. I mean, it was funny money going into the market. Oh we yeah. And so quick on the trigger. Covered. Yep. Um, and, and I say the, the reason why I focused on, it was the right decision um, to pull out of those deals. It was the outcome though. Nobody would have guessed that nobody would have guessed sitting there in March, 
that the stock market would be at new highs in three to four months, right. that lumber prices would be up to 1700, that multifamily would benefit from this. So the deals that we did buy in early uh, 2020, we wrote those down. Um, we wrote those down and investors were understanding about it and we've written them all back up and they've done amazing. And, um, you know, but it, it was a, it was a tough, time and a learning experience, but every crisis is very different. So I don't, we wouldn't have done anything differently. And that's my point of that is sometimes you make the right decision with the wrong outcome. But what we don't want to make is just get lucky and start making bad decisions because bad decisions generally lead to a lot of bad outcomes. So I would make that choice over and over and over again today and pull out of deals and wait and see. Uh, and we jump back into the market, I would say, in probably August and September. And I don't say jump back in. We, we opened our fund back up and started allowing new investment in. And we really started focusing on the preferred equity side of, of the equation then to protect capital. And, and that sure. worked. So our income plus fund, which is our kind of core flagship fund, was down 7%, which is, is great. It's what it was meant to do, protect. It's got some preferred equity development in there, some um, core plus opportunities. And it's been, you know, screaming ever since. So it's been, you know, it's been really good. Outstanding. Well, you know, what a ride. I remember in March, 2020, I would get on the scale every morning because it was a number I could control and feel good about because every yeah. other metric I'm looking yeah. at is like, I don't know. I don't know what's yeah. going to happen. You know, we did have well, to personally I'll, I'll just say, I mean, I, COVID was awful. I, I couldn't stand being on zoom every day. Oh yeah. I undertook no. a lot of house projects around here. <laughs> I built my kids a, a baseball net up on the roof. I built a Murphy bed. I put in new windows. I was, you know, you, when you're staying at your home all day, you realize all the imperfections. So I was at a home Depot, right. you know, every other day loading the car up with lumber or something else. So I did get some things done and I've still, my wife reminds me all the time. I've got some unfinished projects that, to finish. That's right. Yeah. The honeydew list is never, uh, never complete, but yeah, I think we've all like all the dads have had that experience of going to home Depot during COVID and seeing all the other dads there loading up on, uh, on home, uh, home project stuff. Yeah. That was, that was something else. Um, well, thanks for sharing that. It, what a, you know, wild ride from, from so many different perspectives and then the fed coming in, uh, quicker on the trigger than ever before. And it was just to kind of made everybody's head spin. Um, what what do you guys see? Obviously, um, you know, I won't come out point blank and, and ask you a crystal ball question, but as a firm, what are you guys looking ahead next 12, 18, 24 months as far as as far as strategy goes? So that's a good question, a great way to phrase it. I I hate the crystal ball questions. Yep. Where is the market going? Nobody knows, right? And yep. that's what you have to understand. I'll tell you though, like how we're positioning ourselves. Uh, we're still favoring the Sunbelt markets, the low tax states, the growth cities, because the, the virtualization of the workforce is, is real. And we think that the Southern cities are going to continue to benefit from what's happening here. Now you had this mass rush going down there. You've had a lot of people return to the Northern cities, but over time, um, people will continue to migrate down there. And those Southern cities are going to win. The question is, Right now, when you're looking at the, the growth of the last year, I mean, Phoenix was, grew at 17% rents Incredible. We seeing, on, on top of, yeah. you know, growth over growth year over year. Las Vegas grew at 12%. Atlanta grew at 10%. Charlotte grew at 12 So you've seen a tremendous amount of growth. And what I've always said is we're not going to chase 
the growth and that growth has happened mainly in existing properties. But what, even though you've had a rise in construction costs as well, that what we call the return on cost or the, the margin on development has increased because rents have grown way faster than construction costs. So uh, we're bullish on uh, cities like Phoenix, Nashville, Atlanta. We're looking at some smaller cities now as well. And, and I think I mentioned this earlier, Devin, we actually took it upon ourselves to build a proprietary machine learning tool sure. to sort of forecast um, market rent growth and backtest it because the services that we use, we were just never happy with. And it was always this you know, kind of pit in our stomach using these, but not understanding how the data worked and the limitations. Right. And so we actually hired two internal data scientists uh, to look at, I mean, they, they take millions of pieces of public data to rank the markets and look at them on future rent growth, right? And it's not perfect. It's not a crystal ball, but I think it's better than the other services. And what we're looking at is this migration of high wage earners going to kind of moderate wage earning states. And right. when you have the California trade, all these Californians who are making, you know, let's call it $200,000 now moving to Phoenix. And that's why you've gotten this massive jump. It's not just population, but it's also when people are used to paying $4 per square foot in rent. And now you go to Phoenix and it's $1.80. You're like, oh my God, I'll take two of these, right? Right. Um, and the same thing's happening on the East Coast where you have the New Yorkers and people from Boston who are paying astronomical rates in on a price per square foot. And they're moving down to Miami. They're moving down to Tampa. They're moving to Orlando. They're, um, they're just accelerating some of their maybe retirement plans as well, because it's so much cheaper down there. So we think that momentum is going to continue, but I want to be careful about racing in and trying to buy momentum, because as we talked about, one of the most important metrics you can look out there, look at out there is replacement costs. And we're not right. going to buy a 10-year-old project, no matter what the rental growth looks like over the next two or three years, because at some point, that 10-year-old project is going to be 20-year-old project. And if you have to compete with new project rents, you're going to lose. There's going right. to be a point in time where you're just not able to keep up. I love it. That's a, that's a great synopsis. And I appreciate you looking into peeking into the future a little bit, at least from a strategy perspective. Um, Michael, this has been great. I sincerely appreciate you sharing your, your story and, and your insights with the audience here. If someone listening wants to understand more about your firm and maybe get a look at your future projects, if they're qualified, what's a good avenue for, for somebody to do that? Just go to our website, origininvestments.com. We make it really easy. You can download all of our fund materials. You can find our team, our bios. You can connect with somebody directly on the website, um, somebody in investor relations right there as well. Outstanding. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes. If you're listening, you can just click the URL right there in the, the show notes or the description of this episode and, and go uh, meet Michael and his team. Thanks very much. Wish you guys continued success. Appreciate you joining us today. Devin, thank you so much for having me on. This was great. All right. Take care. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. I hope you found that educational, entertaining, inspiring, all of the above. If you are interested in seeing future DJE investment projects and you are not already on our list and in our portal, uh, you can go to the website, djetexas.com. There's a little button there to schedule a 15-minute call with our team answer any questions you have and make sure you get on that list to see that next project that comes out. Also, if you're interested in being 
uh, an investor that runs these deals, we've got a free seven module course for you at apartmenteducators.com. A lot of great free content there to ramp up your education in the multifamily investing space. Once again, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. We always appreciate a five-star review that helps the reach of the show. That's one way you can give back if you enjoyed it. And we'll see you on the next one. Take care. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.